Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that was restless from Texas to California and back again. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 12 would be the number of times she would implore you to take it, break it, have it, her heart in the span of a four-minute R&B single that she made her own, and one that would quickly become one of her signature songs. Two more would be the number of bikers who came looking to collect the debt that she owed and one that she would have to repay some other way if not with cold, hard cash. Another one would be the number of blues highways she drove down as a teenager, racing to beat the clock and to keep a secret. The very same highway where Robert Johnson made a hellishly good deal decades earlier. Three more would be the number of guys caught up in controversy with her when that Blues Highway drive turned problematic. And nine would be the number of years she had left to live after she stumbled upon Venice Beach in California and got her first taste of a truly beatnik lifestyle and culture that was as dangerous as it was freeing. On this, our fourth episode of season three, Debts, Bikers, Reckonings, Crossroads, Beatnik, Beach Life, and Janis Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
The heart of Burt Burns was scarred from the start. Unlike other R&B songwriters from the 1960s who used figurative scars in their verses and choruses to communicate loneliness and desire and existential dread, Burt Burns' affliction was the real deal. Rheumatic fever was the case that they gave him. It was 1945. He was 14. The doctors didn't sugarcoat it. The damage the disease did to Bert's heart was irreversible. It would prove to be deadly one day. Whether it was next year or 10 years down the road, he probably wouldn't make it past 30. But Bert Burns was a tough motherfucker. He made it to 30. White coats be damned. 30 felt like a new life. 30 felt like a new lease. If he could buck the doctor's predictions and stay alive, then he could do anything. He could be a songwriter. He could start a record label. He could make hit records. So he did. Right out of the gate, he crushed it. In the early to mid-60s, he wrote, or co-wrote, Twist and Shout, Cry to Me, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, I Want Candy, Here Comes the Night, and Hang on, Sloopy. He worked with Solomon Burke, Van Morrison, and the Drifters. He started his own label, Bang Records, a subsidiary of Atlantic. And then he launched Shout Records for the R&B material he continued to crank out. By the end of the decade, he'd land over 50 hits on the charts, like the death-defying, scarred heart badass that he was. But as tough as Burt was, he felt that he needed help. Help to be tougher. When he called in his big guns, they were literally just that. Big guns, strapped to the waist of give-no-fucks big guys, capable men, qualified men, earners for the Genovese family in New York City. The world of R&B music publishing and production in the mid-20th century was straight cutthroat, a high-stakes game where anything went. Like many label men muscling their way through a sea of competition, Burt wanted to do what Burt wanted to do. He wanted his word to be fucking gospel from his mouth to God's ears. If he needed some well-connected men by his side to make his desire a reality, then so be it. People wouldn't just be impressed by Burt's songs. They'd fear him. When record execs Jerry Wexler and Ahmad Erdogan tried to take over Bang Records, Burt brought made man Tommy Eboli over to Wexler's office. And they made it very clear that no one was taking Bang Records away. And they made it even clearer that no one fucked with Burt Burns. It was hard to deny the whiff of goon muscle in the air when Van Morrison signed a comprehensive contract with Burt that gave him control of everything. Management, production, label, publishing. Burt wanted Van to sign it all, and so Van signed it all. And then there was Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond didn't own a gun, so when he needed one for his own protection and to protect his family, he borrowed a 38 revolver from a friend. And the solitary man was feeling real solitary, scared, paranoid. He told himself that he wasn't acting crazy, that his paranoia was justified. Burt was the one acting crazy. Neil wanted to release his latest song, Shiloh, as a single, but Bert found it a little too introspective and not bubblegummy enough. Bert said no. Bert's word was the word. The two argued. Neil stood his ground. Neil said some things he would regret. And Bert upped the ante and had some guys come around to assist Neil in seeing things Bert's way. And then things got weird. Neil's manager, Fred Weintraub, didn't catch the faces of the guys who jumped him. But when they were through with him, his face was unrecognizable. Neil's mind immediately went to Bert. Next, at a show at the bitter end in Greenwich Village, a smoke bomb went off in the middle of Neil's set. Neil had the microphone in one hand, eyes closed tight to make sure he hit the right note at the right time. 
He was singing Cherry Cherry, and he knew he had the ears in the room right where he wanted them. His other hand was outstretched towards the crowd, that universal attempt at connection from singer to audience. But when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anyone. Didn't matter how hard he tried to connect, the whole room was full of thick gray smoke. People were choking on it. The smoke plumed and blew around the room as people scattered from wall to wall, desperately trying to find the exit. It was chaos. Neil thought it was Bert. So Neil borrowed the 38. He packed up his wife and kid and moved them from their new place in Manhattan out to Long Island. It was like they were in hiding. Bert didn't cop to the mugging or to the bitter end bombing. He pleaded ignorance and he kept on writing. He didn't realize it, but one of the last songs he would ever write would be one of his most personal. He went back to the thing that had defined him most of his life, the thing that made him vulnerable, but also that made him tough, the thing that allowed him to fear and love life simultaneously, his heart. Bert wrote Peace of My Heart with Jerry Ragavoy for Irma Franklin, who was looking for her own hit to break out of her sister's shadow. Irma was the oldest of three girls, but her younger sister, Aretha, the middle child, got all the attention. In 1967, all eyes were on Aretha, AKA Soul Sister Number One. In 1967, Aretha sent a slew of singles straight to number one on the R&B and pop charts. Irma was there for every step of Aretha's success. And despite being four years older and a great singer in her own right, Irma was often relegated to a hard to see spot beyond the spotlight. She stood behind Aretha, she sang backup, she played a supporting role. Now, Peace of My Heart, that was all Irma. That was her song, the song of an underdog. The song was moving up the charts in late 1967 when Bert's heart finally gave out. He was just 38 years old. Those who worked closest with him didn't want anything to do with his legacy. They resented the way he had pushed them all around and made them feel threatened. Jerry Wexler had no idea where Bert was buried, but said if he knew, he would visit simply so he could piss on his grave. In the 2011 compilation of his seminal years on Bang Records, Neil Diamond made no mention of Burt Burns in the liner notes. It wasn't long after Burt's death that Jack Cassidy, bass player for the Jefferson Airplane, heard Peace of My Heart on KSOL or KDIA or one of the Bay Area radio stations playing R&B hits. Irma Franklin's single had made it to number 10 on the R&B charts. It was early 1968. When Cassidy heard Aretha Franklin's older supporting role sister, Heard the ache in her vocal, the way the lyric pushed her voice to the brink of collapse, the pleading, come on, come on, come on, come on. He knew that this song could be the anthem for his scene's little sister. It could be pure gold in the hands and voice of Janis Joplin. Janis had shared some of her original material with Big Brother and the Holding Company, songs like Turtle Blues, but like many iconic performers before and after her, she was a singer first. She was an interpreter of material. It's a fallacy to say that the best quote-unquote artists are the ones who write their own material. Interpreting material, making someone else's song your own, whether you're Aretha riffing on Otis or Johnny Cash remaking Trent Reznor, that's art too. Peace of My Heart would be one of Janice's earliest and best-known signature songs, the one that would introduce her band to the world beyond the Bay Area scene the one that would break them into the cities that had given them the cold shoulder in the past. But it was also the song that gave Janice a glimpse of life after Big Brother. It put her out front. She was stepping out from the band's unified front, the unified front that powered democratic songs like Combination of the Two. Peace of My Heart was a vehicle for Janice's voice and Janice's career. 
And people noticed. Mama Cass noticed. Albert Grossman noticed. Clive Davis noticed. Most importantly, Peace of My Heart gave Janis Joplin the opportunity to make that climb to the top, to survey Big Brother and everyone else as they remained far, far below. An opportunity that was all the sweeter because only a few years earlier, she had found herself at the very pit of human despair. Spring, 1965, San Francisco. It was late, and the only light outside the anxious asp came from the club's neon sign that buzzed above the sidewalk. She had a hard time making out the faces of the men who were walking towards her. She leaned against the outside wall of the asp, a cigarette slowly burning between her fingers. She didn't know these guys by sight, didn't know them by name, but she knew them in her gut. She had a queasy feeling deep down why they were walking towards her. They were saying her name out loud. You Janice? One of the guys asked. She heard knuckles crack. One of them held a thumb up to a nostril and blew snot from his nose. She tried to make out their features from what little light the neon sign offered, but they remained mostly in the shadows. She nervously looked up and down the street, hoping to spot a random passerby or, better yet, a group of people out for an evening stroll between night spots, but no luck. She was on her own, and she was made. Janice nervously flicked the cigarette into the middle of Green Street and bought herself a few more seconds by letting the cigarette smoke ooze from the corner of her mouth before she answered. Who's asking? She shot back. She had to act tough. At least, she knew this. She knew survival. She knew self-preservation. She also knew these two guys were there about the money. The money for the drugs. She just knew it. She could see their denim jackets now saw their scraggly beards, tattoos. She knew they were bikers. She didn't know if they were angels or from another club, but she knew they were there to collect. She had debts that had gone unpaid. And that's all she had, debts, debts, and a drink waiting for her on the bar inside and a spent butt slowly burning out in the middle of Green Street and a Jones for a fix like you read about. And what Janice didn't have was their money. She knew these guys were going to hurt her. Her hands started to shake. She thought about making a run for it, just haul ass down the steep incline of Green Street, bang a right on Stockton, maybe hide out in Washington Square. Then she sized up the two guys, did some rudimentary math in her head, and wondered if she could outrun them. You got that money you owe us? The other biker asked. They were right in front of her now, so close that she could smell them. Biker smell of leather, gasoline, and cheap beer. She wasn't going anywhere. She knew what was about to happen. She'd tell them that she didn't have their money, that she'd used the money she'd made from slinging their dope to get her own fix, but that she had a plan for how she'd get the money back. She just needed a little more time. And then the two bikers would probably look at each other. One would say to the other, she just needs a little more time, and they'd laugh. And then they'd stop laughing and they'd turn their heads back to face hers. And then she knew what would happen next. One of the bikers would hold her against the wall of the anxious ass while the other one beat the shit out of her. In the spring of 65, Janice had been in San Francisco for two years. After hitching west from Port Arthur with her friend Chet Helms in January 1963, it was her second attempt at hanging out in San Francisco at that point. 
she was 20 years old. She dragged an auto harp around local clubs and cafes. She played songs by Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey along with some of her own originals for some scratch. She played as a duo with a cat named Jorma who would go on to play with Jefferson Airplane in Hot Tuna. She rubbed elbows with Bay Area bluegrass groups like the Pine Valley Boys, the Liberty Hill Aristocrats, and the Wildwood Boys, the latter which featured a young Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter. When she needed more money, she'd panhandle on the street. She'd even sling dope. She got into slinging dope by doing dope. First, her drinking had gotten worse. Then the pills came to balance out the lows of the alcohol. And then it was methamphetamine to keep the buzzed feeling all the time. And also to stay up late and stay alert for hours. It gave her enough energy to write, rehearse, create. It gave her false confidence that she was in control. She left San Francisco to haunt the Lower East Side of New York City for a few months. It was a drug-fueled boondoggle. She hung out with the A-heads. She shot speed. She shot meth. She shot pool. Singing took a back seat. Back in the Bay Area, she missed a gig at the top of the tangent in Palo Alto. She didn't show for her slot at the State College Music Folk Festival. And by her 22nd birthday, her addiction was all-consuming. She would later look back on that time of her life and say, I wanted to smoke dope, take dope, lick dope, suck dope, fuck dope, anything I could lay my hands on, I wanted to do it. And the venues she frequented got wise. Coffee and Confusion, the cafe in North Beach where Janice played often got burned one too many times. A typical night would involve Janice showing up, asking for an advance on that night's show, and then she'd bail halfway through her set. She'd be found out at the Amp Palace or the Anxious Ass, looking for her next score with the money she'd just pocketed. Staff at Coffee and Confusion put their foot down. They put up a sign. It read, anyone caught giving Janice Joplin money before the end of her set will be fired. At the Anxious Asp, Janice could hide out with like-minded freaks. Formerly a cabaret, the Asp catered to the queer bohemian crowd. They played Charlie Parker on the hi-fi and plastered the Kingsley Report all over the bathroom walls. At the Asp, you could get a drink and be who you wanted, flirt with who you wanted. No judgment. You could shoot pool or go to the bathroom stall and shoot other things. But still, no judgment. No judgment suited Janis Joplin just fine. It's what she loved about San Francisco and also what she hated about Texas. She'd been judged her whole life. She wasn't pretty enough. She wasn't girly enough. She was too tough, too vulgar. She was an outsider's outsider. The Asp was all outsiders. All people who didn't belong somewhere else. But once she stepped outside the asp, she was no longer safe. She was an easy target, leaned up against the wall on Green Street to those who were looking for her. People like these two bikers here to collect on debts owed. And the bikers stuffed their fists into her stomach until she fell onto the pavement. And when she was on the ground, curled in a fetal position with her eyes shut tight and her emaciated arms covering her acne-scarred face, they kicked her in the ribs until they felt satisfied. Janice limped home, bruised and bloodied that night. She was out of it, gonzo. Whether she was high on meth or low on a Jones, she could barely think straight. She had stopped performing. She weighed less than 100 pounds and was still shedding LBs. The one thing she did know was that things had gone from bad to worse. And if she didn't get the hell out of town and back into some sort of stability, then San Francisco would be the death of her. She'd waste away to nothing and no one would be the wiser. Her friends rallied. They emptied their pockets, bought her a one-way ticket on a Greyhound bus headed east. Janice took her seat against the window near the back of the bus, leaned her head against the glass and nodded off. When she woke up, she'd be home, back in Port Arthur, Texas, skinny, strung out, and ready to admit defeat. 
We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Janice Joplin felt like she had been put in Texas at birth by mistake. Like it was some kind of cosmic joke. Just to think Janice, a free spirit and free thinker, hidden away in an oppressive pocket of America, way down at the very bottom of the map. So far down that you didn't even know it was there. Nobody knew where the fuck Port Arthur was, and nobody cared either. And sure, her destiny would take her out west, transform her into a preeminent beatnik and a trailblazing rock and roller, a liberator of women, a peace sign tossing freak flag waver. But first, She'd have to navigate through her adolescence in an upside-down place, in Texas. And if Texas wasn't bad enough, Port Arthur was even worse. Sure as shit wasn't Austin. Janice just didn't belong there. She felt it in her bones. Port Arthur knew it too. Port Arthur had her in its clutches. It knew she was different and that she hated it. And for those reasons, it wasn't going to let go of her so easily. Janice would have to prove herself strong if she ever was going to free herself from her hometown. And not just get free, but stay free. Port Arthur was an oil town. In 1901, the Spindletop Well in nearby Beaumont struck black gold and gushed for nine days straight. In 1902, the oil refinery in Port Arthur opened and quickly became one of the largest in the country. Oil brought Janice's parents to town. Seth and Dorothy Joplin came from Amarillo in the 1930s when Seth landed a job at the Texas Company, which would later become Texaco. He managed a factory that made shipping containers for petroleum. Janice arrived on January 19, 1943, the first of three children. As she grew up, she proved herself different at every turn. She was a tomboy when the other local girls were consumed with beauty pageant standards. She cursed when the other girls spoke proper. She skipped school while the other girls sat at their desks all day and listened to chalk scrape down the blackboard. She championed inclusion and acceptance while the city practiced strict segregation. She didn't dress provocatively. She had bad acne. She was teased and bullied and made to feel less than. Less than all the other girls who dressed the same, spoke the same, sat at their desks the same. She gravitated towards the boys who accepted her as one of their own, whether that was a sister, a fellow dude, or just an outsider looking for refuge. Whatever she was, Janice was not conventional. Fuck that shit. Conventional was boring, it was rote. Conventional was expected. It's what you were supposed to be. And she didn't want to be what anyone wanted her to be. Port Arthur obviously couldn't offer her what she wanted. In high school, she jumped the Louisiana border with other thrill-seeking friends and hung out at joints like Buster's, Luann's, and the Big Oak, where R&B bands played loud. And the scene was packed, it was rowdy. It wasn't uncommon for fists to be thrown around. And in 1960, when Janice turned 17 and was a senior in high school, she decided that she had to go farther. She had to push not just a little ways beyond Port Arthur's boundaries, not just hop the border to nestle into some forbidden juke joint. She wanted to feel real free, more free than ever before. And freedom was four hours away in New Orleans. She put together a posse of guys who shared in her wanderlust, 
Jim Langdon, a trombone player two years her senior, Dale Gothia of the local blues band The Boogie Kings, and fellow classmate Clyde Wade. She told her folks that she was spending the night at her friend Carlene Bennett's house. And then they bought some beers, piled into her father's 1953 sedan, and hit the road for the Big Easy. New Orleans served up mouth-watering plates of liberation. The booze, the music, the sex, it all spilled from the nightclubs and the second-floor walk-ups and oozed out onto the street. Everywhere Janice turned, there was excitement, temptation, vice. Conservative Southern values were turned upside down on their heads. And there was life beyond Port Arthur, and it hid out in the open in places like New Orleans. The trip was brief. Janice had to have the car back by the morning so that she didn't blow her cover story about the sleepover. Her crew piled back into the car before the sun rose so that they could make good time on the four-hour trip back to Port Arthur. And they took Highway 61, the Blues Highway. The same highway where a Mississippi blues singer named Robert Johnson supposedly made a deal with the devil, right there at the crossroads of 61 and Highway 49, a Faustian bargain that imbued Johnson with hellishly good talent in exchange for his soul. Johnson went on down to the crossroads, tried to flag a ride, and there was no one else on that road. It was just the devil and Mr. Johnson. The devil asked to see his guitar, and Johnson held it up. The devil was taller than Johnson. His hands were about twice the bluesman's size. The devil held Johnson's Gibson L1 flat top like it was a child's three-quarter model, turned it around in his hands. He strummed an E7 chord. The B string was flat. The high E was sharp. He put his big hands on the tuners, brought the acoustic back. The E7 sounded rich, full, pure, evil. He handed the guitar back to Johnson and was on his way. And then the devil came for Johnson's soul when he was only 27. If Janice had been told that the devil was out on the highway the night that she drove her crew back from New Orleans, she might have believed it. And they were barely outside of New Orleans when the rain started. It hit the windshield in fat droplets. They splattered and spun out into formless shapes that fucked with their sleep-deprived, beer-infused eyes. The blobby rain splatters turned the whole windshield into an impressionist painting that Janice was in no mood to decode. The wipers struggled to keep up. And the horizon was full of undefined shadows and figures and structures. They raced past a man standing on the side of the road, thumb extended, could have been the devil himself for all Janice knew. The headlights of oncoming cars became smears of white. It was hard to tell when taillights were superseded by brake lights. Janice was attempting to make sense of it all through half-masked eyes when she realized that the car in front of her, a newer Chevy, had stopped. She slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. The man in the Chevy stumbled out of the car, his hand at his neck. Janice was cursing a blue streak. They all were, all four of them inside Seth Joplin's car, which was jammed up the ass end of some poor SOB's goddamn Chevy on Highway 61 just outside New Orleans. And the cops gave Janice the benefit of the doubt. Since the weather was so shitty, and the accident wasn't all that bad, honestly, and the guy who got rammed in the Chevy was probably milking it anyway. And the bigger issue was Janice's age. Dale and Jim were older. They had driven across state lines with a minor. It didn't matter if she was actually driving the car. And the cops started talking about the Man Act, started talking about felonies, about men preying on women, about jail time. Dale and Jim freaked. Janice stayed calm on the outside, but on the inside, she freaked too. She knew she could clear the whole thing up. All she had to do was call her parents in Port Arthur so they could explain to the cops that the guys she was with were good friends and posed no threats. But the ruse would be up. Her lie would be uncovered. The punishment would come down. The judgment would come down too. 
And it wasn't just her parents doing the judging. Back at school, the whispers and rumors about Janice got juicier. The bullying got more personal. They said that Janice slept around, that she was loose, that Janice took three guys with her to New Orleans and had a full-on freaky-deaky good time. And the more Janice angled for liberation, the more she was pigeonholed by the conventional Texas establishment. College life wasn't any better. Later that year, she enrolled at Lamar State College of Technology at her parents' insistence. For her parents, it was a local and cheap option, something to keep her close and give her a trade to fall back on. For Janice, it was just another way for her folks in the great state of Texas to hold her back. One night, she embarked on another road trip, this one to Houston. She knocked back handfuls of pills with copious amounts of wine and wound up in the hospital. When she came to, in bed back home in Port Arthur, her parents seemed to finally be realizing the truism that Janice had known all along. And there was Texas, and there was Janice, and never the twain shall meet. Jim Morrison may have been the golden god of Venice Beach, but Janis Joplin beat him to the scene by about four years. And by the time Janis got there, the scene was on its way out. But Janis didn't know scene from Shinola. All she knew was California from Texas. It could have been a wannabe scene, could have been a moldy oldie scene, and she still would have signed up. True to its name, Venice in Los Angeles was modeled after Venice in Italy by Abe Kinney a developer who dug miles of canals to create a seaside resort town replete with quaint cottages and palazzo buildings. Around 1910, boardwalk games and rides turned it into an amusement park destination. But LA neglected Venice, and by the 1950s, the Coney Island of the West had become the slum by the sea. Buildings were falling in, canals once flowing with life were full of concrete. The palazzos, once home to high-end retail and bingo parlors, were now shelters for homeless squatters. The run-down feel of the neighborhood had its own outsider charm, not to mention the charm of its cheap rents, and it soon became a hotspot for Southern California poets, writers, and musicians, the fringe people, the way-gone daddios. It was also ground zero for a criminal and drug-addled element, which came out under the blanket of night and haunted the funky stretch of coastline. These were the shadow people looking for an easy target, a quick fix, a lucky score. But there had always been a shady element in Venice. Illegal gambling was rife throughout the decades. The business of sketch reigned supreme. Janice knew she was getting into some weird shit in Venice, but weird was good. Weird was exactly what the doctor ordered. The less it reminded her of home, the better. She wound up in Venice in the summer of 1961 via Brentwood, specifically the homes of her aunts Mimi and Barbara. Following her wine and pills fueled trip to the hospital in Houston, she dropped out of Lamar. Her mother wasn't sure what to do with her anymore. She was always running off, getting loaded, neglecting school. Dorothy's solution was to put her on a bus to California where she'd live with her aunts and work at the General Telephone Company in Santa Monica as a key punch operator, a now defunct job that was as monotonous as it sounds, but out of sight, out of mind. First, Janice lived with Aunt Mimi, and she soon got her own apartment, but paying the rent on time wasn't really her style. She moved in with Barbara's daughter, but she never felt like she fit in. And then she stumbled onto Venice, just a long distance stroll down the coast from Santa Monica. Venice was certainly not Port Arthur, 
Venice was well-rolled joints and barbiturates scattered in the sand. Venice was a place to watch the Pacific deep and blue, its dull roar, white noise for the soul. The rundown stretch of amusement park attractions decaying like a faded postcard of some once great sight of fabled Americana. Cast off with neglect and perverted by the underbelly that scurried inside the husk like a hermit crab. Those underbelly types posed a threat to the status quo. The thinkers, the talkers, the poets, and the artists, and the singers. They were too strange, even for California. Janice sniffed out the strange. Beatniks filled the seats at the gas house. The main hangout for the outsider community were fringe figures like Eric Big Daddy Nord hung out. The cops took aim at the counterculture and at the gas house in general, even sending in one of their own undercover to drink their beer and sip their wine and infiltrate their status quo-defying groupthink. Janice settled into a squalid garage apartment at 25 and a half Brooks Avenue, just a block from the beach. She sought out any of the beatniks who were still hanging around, but mostly, she found the sketchy human detritus. Those who had been left behind, those who had burned out and were working on fading away, those who had learned to lurk in the shadows in the sunken cottages and crumbling palazzos. And the shadow people were everywhere, especially at night. Janice would light up a joint and suddenly they would be there. The flame from her match would illuminate a face that had been next to her all along, in the dark. She'd sense a shadow creep over her shoulder. The shadows had weight in Venice. The wind tore through the broken windows of the broke-down palace. The waves of the Pacific crashed a block away, and those sounds of a once vibrant seaside community ushered in a spectral form. Sensing the encroaching shadow, Janice would turn around and there would be one, two, maybe three of the shadow people. Maybe someone she'd seen a few nights before, maybe someone new. They'd ask her for a hit, ask her for money, ask what she was doing later. And they brought around harder stuff, darker stuff, the sorts of highs she'd only heard about, the sorts of highs that she worried would lead to dangerous lows. They left the same way they came in, carried by the sound of the sea at the moment that Janice closed her eyes and took a hit. She would open her eyes and something would be missing. A few bucks, a jacket, some sunglasses. And the shadow people did their grifting under the cover of the night. And the more time Janice spent in Venice, the more she felt like she was chasing some elusive enlightenment that was no longer there. But it was a gateway, an education. Things weren't always what they seemed. People weren't always who they said they were. Life out west really was wild, like they said. But wild can be dangerous. Wild can be deadly. Janice's first real time spent in California was the beginning to other moments in her life. Moments that would lead to addiction, deception, and even the paranoid, watchful eye of the real big brother, the FBI. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. This episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app to hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more. Go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play The Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. 
Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Weekly, every Thursday. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.